Today's message is entitled, Strong or Weak? Strong or Weak? We continue our series, The Whole Truth. Now, we talked last week about the fact that when we read the Bible, we need to keep in mind that the Bible isn't written like a book of science where each statement is complete in and of itself. When we come to the Bible, we must take the totality of what the Scripture says on a certain topic before drawing a final conclusion. Unfortunately, half-truths are believed and are taught as God's truth. Some individuals misuse God's Word and take statements out of context to justify or excuse certain behaviors or certain practices. We must always view what seems to be two conflicting thoughts in the Bible as twin truths that must be held together in healthy tension, much like the strings on a guitar. These truths can also be viewed as arms, two arms that extend from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. And just as Jesus cannot be divided, neither can these truths. This morning, I'd like to talk with you about another two arms of truth, if you please, that cannot be separated from each other, and that is strength, and that is weakness. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted to ask someone's advice, but you were worried that you might appear to come across or just might appear to be incompetent? Perhaps you forfeited doing something you really liked for the same reason. A recent uh, report, study, released by researchers from Harvard Business School and Wharton School in Pennsylvania, suggests that the fear, our fear of looking incompetent, this comes as good news to some of us, our fear of looking incompetent might actually make us look incompetent. The research found that though many people are afraid to ask for advice and risk being or looking incompetent, they actually, it actually works backwards. People who seek advice are likely to be thought of as more competent, at least by the people they're asking, which is understandable to an extent. Though the old adage, there are no stupid questions, sometimes it feels wiser to be quiet and to muddle through than to look like a complete fool. Yet, uh, this is where the research gets very interesting. Researchers paired participants with an unseen partner that could only communicate over instant messaging. Uh, the partners didn't actually exist. The researchers programmed the messages that were sent. The participants <clears throat> were then asked to do a brain teaser before handing the task off to their, their partner. The participants were asked to do that brain te teaser. Once they completed that task, they received a message from the par their partner that either read, I hope it went well, do you have any advice? Or simply, I hope it went well. Later, when asked by the researchers, people rated the partner who asked for advice as being more competent than those who had simply wished them well. What's more, the harder the brain teaser, the more competent the advice-seeking partner, uh, advice partner was rated. We'll do almost anything. We will do almost anything to be viewed, avoid being viewed as incompetent or weak. Revealing that we cannot do something makes us feel small and sometimes makes us feel inferior. So we tried to avoid those areas of weakness. But the reality is we cannot hide them. Life laughingly taunts us, are you competent at this? 
and then it hands us a completely new challenge for our life. Whatever area of insecurity, your area of insecurity is, the fact is, we all have one. The world around us has taught us ways of trying to look competent. Some of us look competent by the, by the clothes that we wear, by saying the right things most of the time, and perhaps even avoiding bad manners. But these are only appearances. They can only be a veneer. We still carry with us feelings of weakness and security, and we encounter various kinds of failure. It seems we're driven to prove ourselves strong and competent, and to some degree, we should. For after all, God did create us to be capable individuals. Now, at the same time, our capabilities are limited, and life sometimes appears to be too big a challenge. We feel the need to prove ourselves, but we're also afraid of failure. We are always vulnerable to failure, and as we age, vulnerability increases. And we know we have limitations, but often God calls us past our limitations. Jeremiah, you remember, complained that he was too young to be called by God to speak for him, but what did God do? He called him anyway. You think about Moses, he tried to excuse himself because he felt he couldn't speak or he didn't have what it took, but what did God do? God called him anyway. We often find ourselves caught between the fear of failure and the need to prove ourselves, between awareness of our weaknesses and God's call to serve with strength. Let me say that again because this is foundational to what we're going to study here. <clears throat> we often find ourselves caught between the fear of failure and the need to prove ourselves, between awareness of our weaknesses and God's call to serve with strength. Now, men in particular, we often try to hide our weaknesses by showing how tough we really are. We're not going to let on and uh, to let anyone know what our Achilles heel is, so to speak. And sometimes women attempt the same tactic. Proving how tough we are may seem necessary, perhaps in a dog-eat-dog world, but it destroys any ability for understanding and to have any meaningful relationship. Uh, a don't-tread-on-me attitude does not invite intimacy, and neither does it invite trust. The Bible is ultimately about living competently for God. That's what the Bible is ultimately about, living a life that reflects the glory, the image of Christ. What does competence mean? Competence means the necessary ability or having the necessary ability, knowledge, or skill to do something successfully. In other words, uh, capability or competence means being capable. Competence means being capable. Like Joshua, we're called to be strong and courageous. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1, if you'd be so kind, <clears throat> just after the book of Deuteronomy, Joshua chapter 1, and we'll look here at verse 6 and 9. Look at the commands that God gives to Joshua. God is, uh, Joshua has been chosen to take the children of Israel over into the promised land, and uh, God is encouraging Joshua. Notice what He says. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 1 and verse 6, God says, be strong and of what? Good courage. Now, look at verse 9 with me. He expounds, expounds that a little bit or expands that a little bit. Have not I commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
like Joshua, you and I are called to be strong and we're called to be courageous. What does all of that mean? Now, whether through commands, whether through proverbs, whether through promises, the Bible in effect says this is the way, walk in it and please God. God presents something to us. He says, I want you to do this. He asks us to walk in it and in doing so to please Him, you see. But what the Bible says about competent living is sometimes disconcerting. Turn with me over to second turn with me over to second Corinthians chapter 12 and we'll look at verse 10. Over into the New Testament now, second Corinthians chapter 12 and look and look at verse 10. What the Bible says sometimes about living competently, courageously, being strong can sometimes appear to be disconcerting. Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. Notice Paul writes, and he said to me, that is Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my weakness is made perfect, my strength rather, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, we're told that in our, in, in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. Once again, we're confronted with the fact of the Scripture's point of view, uh, the Scripture's point of view is dramatically opposed to human common sense. Misunderstandings of the dynamics of strength and weaknesses are ramp rampant, and even within the Christian community. If you have a, a good job and you have a bright future, your wife was, and your wife was offered a job she wanted in another town, should the husband display strength and insist they stay or should he show weakness by being willing to move? You work at a real estate, you work as a real estate agent, and the competition perhaps is fierce. Your co-worker betrays you by taking several good uh, clients away from you. Should you allow, should you show your, show your strength by taking revenge, or should you be weak and forgive her? Oftentimes, the world's version of weakness and strength complicates the matter, especially when Christians imbibe and believe the definitions put upon these words. Strength and weaknesses can be viewed positively or and negatively. Strength may point to competence and to the power of God working in our life, but it can also be used to suggest that we are strong enough on our own. In that case, that wouldn't be necessarily right. Weakness may point to our inadequacies or our limitations, but as we'll see, it can also be used positively positively to be referred to our identification with the cross of Jesus Christ. We will find here in this study that the biblical formula for strength is found in giving up. That's what the Bible teaches. Strength, biblical, true biblical strength, the formula for biblical strength is in fact giving up. It's interesting that of several words used for man in the Hebrew, uh, in the biblical Hebrew, two of them seem to have opposite connotations. One appears to derive from a root meaning strong and the other from a root meaning weakness. Both connotations are true of humanity depending on how we look at things, but neither approach viewed by itself is actually valid. Misunderstandings naturally prevent us to live the life Christ desires us all to live. Either we overestimate or we undervalue our capabilities. Now, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
But some people take those words and they simply say, I can do all things. I can do all things. Their attitude is that they can handle life by themselves without God. And we tend to be only aware of God only when we have need of Him. After having used all the, the right language and we've done our little, uh, our little ceremonies in the hope that God will listen and will please, uh, be pleased, we presumptuously expect Him to do our bidding. But God doesn't work that way. The truth is that none of us are competent, all of us, none of us are competent for all of life. We deceive ourselves by ignoring our frailty and our limitations. We've forgotten the words of Jesus found in John chapter 15 and verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. We live in a life that looks, we can live a life that looks competent, but competent living doesn't come from our attempts to prove competent while hiding our incompetence. In the final analysis, we've only avoided the areas of weakness and we've avoided the difficulties that face us in our life. Without God, any competence we have, even though it is a gift from God, is limited and it is temporary. Now, other people make the opposite error. They take the words of Jesus, without me, you can do nothing, and they abbreviate them, abbreviate them to say, I can do nothing. Too many people view themselves as weak and incompetent, especially when we compare ourselves with others. Reminds me, and I think I've shared this with you, reminds me of a little cartoon about a couple of cows out in a pasture, and apparently these cows could talk, and a milk truck drove up, and it parked itself right in front of the cows. They were grazing. On the side of the truck, the, the truck said, uh, talking about the milk inside the truck, that it was pasteurized, homogenized, with vitamin D added. Apparently, these cows could talk, and one looked at the other cow and said, it kind of makes you feel inadequate, doesn't it? Some people view themselves as weak and incompetent, and when, especially when we compare ourselves with others. Jesus' words don't imply that those without Christ can accomplish, cannot accomplish anything. It is obvious when observing those who don't know Jesus, when they don't know Christ, that some of these folk can be creative, they can be productive, they can be wise, they can be helpful, they can be loving to some extent, and they are, they are capable in many areas. Bearing fruit of the Spirit is the subject under discussion in John chapter 15. What the text means is that no person, no person can accomplish anything in connection with the purposes of Christ apart from Christ. That's what that verse actually is talking about. The text doesn't mean that we are inherently uh, incapable and inherently weak. But amazingly, that is exactly what a good number of people, especially Christians, say about themselves. Nothing is more devastating to competent living, to authentic relationships, to love, to learning, and to productivity than a negative self-image. The truth is, we are both weak and we are strong. We are both weak and we are strong. We live in both realities. It's, common sense, it's a common sense scenario. A person never seems to get a break in life. The home situation isn't good, and they do poorly in school. And although the person appears to be capable, they can't seem to find their way past the ordinary life. They can't see themselves doing anything worthwhile, even perhaps for God. There are many people that live their life like this. Although they might not say so, they view themselves as incompetent. A negative self-image results in self-doubt and a fear of people and fear of certain situations. 
Faced with a task of opportunity, people can become so shackled with fear that they can't do the job that's before them. One recourse is simply not to do the task and avoid the risk altogether. Uh, we could also follow the strategy that someone pointed out when he said, I always fight with one hand behind my back so that if I lose, I have an excuse. How many battles do you and I fight with one hand tied behind our back? Now, Christians can sometimes, you and I, we can sometimes confuse the situation by misapplying the words back in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. Just go back there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. We read this earlier, let's read it again. And he said, that is, Jesus said to me, to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes we can make things more complicated and more confusing by misapplying these words, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes we try to turn our deficiencies actually into virtues, but that won't work either. What Paul refers, when Paul refers to weakness, he does, he's not referring to incompetence. The context of this verse points to Paul's proverbial thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. Maybe it was uh, perhaps a degree of blindness that he received when uh, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're not exactly sure, but the context is Paul's thorn in his flesh. Other texts where Paul speaks of weakness refers to Paul's suffering as a, as, as a missionary, on his missionary efforts, or in his identification with the cross of Jesus. We're over there in 2 Corinthians. Just jump back with me to chapter 11 and verse 30. Look at what he says here. He says, if I must boast, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my what? My infirmity. So the, the hardships, the difficulties that Paul was experiencing on his missionary endeavors were, those, were, the, were the weaknesses that he's referring to, you see. And his inability in and of himself to reflect Jesus through those difficulties and challenges, you see. Go over with me to chapter 13 and verse 4. Chapter 13 and verse 4. He says, for though he, talking of Jesus, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are what? Weak in him. But we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. And so Paul speaks of weakness when he refers to the challenges he faces in his proclamation of the gospel during his missionary efforts or his identification with the cross of Jesus. Weakness does not refer to incompetence, it refers to the difficulties encountered in living and proclaiming the gospel. Now, Paul placed no value on his accomplishments, neither on his standing in his community. Instead, in Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 through 8, Paul said he considered all things loss to gain Jesus. He considered all things loss to gain Jesus. However, it's one thing to refuse to place value on an accomplishment or on a standing, and it's quite another to have no accomplishment or no standing. There are three factors that normally render people incompetent, and I'm going to put these on the screen for you one at a time. Three reasons, three areas, three factors that normally render a person incompetent. Number one, they fight the wrong battles. They fight the wrong battles. They put all their energy and time in figuring out more and more elaborate ways, but not facing the very area they need to confront. This, is merely, this becomes merely a defense mechanism to avoid the truth. It's like worrying, 
about uh, you worrying about the paper clips in your drawer instead of getting on with the tough issues in your job. That's, what, that's how some people live their lives. Churches worry sometimes about their organizational structure or their programs in the local church and never get around to expressing and living the gospel. Life must be focused on issues and problems that really count. To live competently then requires the wisdom to determine what needs to be done and the honesty to deal with it directly. That's number one. First factor that renders people incompetent. Number two, some people are incompetent because they are willing to, they're not willing to expend energy to succeed. They're too passive, too lazy. It's been said that the twin sources of all vices are pride and laziness. Fortunately, Jesus can drive both out of the life. It is impossible to serve God and be lazy all at the same time. That's the second factor that renders people incompetent. The third area, some people are rendered incompetent because others have convinced them that they are incompetent. People are not born with self-doubts. Child, when they first start talking, the first words they, they do not speak is, I do not like myself. I don't think I can do this. Instead, what you see with a child is what? Determination. You see perseverance. Just look at them trying to walk. Look at them trying to, before that, look at them trying to sit up. Look at them trying to keep their head still. Persevering. No one is born with self-doubts. We are taught along the way. Sometimes self-doubts happen because a certain person has experienced abuse, whether that might be sexual, whether that might be physical, or whether that might be mental or emotional, or it could even just simply be neglect. They were not given the grace and the help they needed to learn that they could be what God had called them to be. There are countless episodes of individuals who were rejected by one or both of their parents from day one. Always called dumb, these individuals who become very capable people may never fully recover from the damage done to them by their parents. But thankfully, the grace of God can work to heal those scars. I read of a man once who was walking through the twisted streets of uh, Kowloon in Hong Kong, where he came upon a tattoo studio. In the window was displayed several samples of tattoos you could put on your arm or your chest or something like that. But what struck the man with force were three words that a person could actually tattoo on their flesh. Born to lose. Born to lose. He entered the shop, this individual, in astonishment, and he pointed to those words and asked the Chinese tattoo artist, does anyone really, anyone really take this terrible phrase and tattoo it on their arm or on their chest or someplace on their body? And he said, sometimes, sometimes they do. But I just can't believe that anyone in his right mind would do that, the man said. The Chinese man simply tapped his forehead and in his broken English, he said, before tattoo on the body, tattoo in the mind. Tattoo in the mind. The only way to get out of the quagmire of self-doubt is to begin to take seriously one of the first things we learn when we read the Bible. And what is that? That it was God who created us. It was God who created us, that He declared His creation good that He has created us in His own image. God does not create junk. He does not create junk. We have the value and the abilities that God has given to us. Now, this doesn't mean that we can be anything we like, and nor does it mean that we are equally capable. 
doesn't mean that. People do have varied levels of ability, but we can focus on the tasks appropriate to God's leading, and we can work to prepare ourselves to perform those tasks. And by God's grace, we become what God intended for us to become, transformed by His grace. What puts fear into most people's minds? Well, some people are afraid of heights, aren't they? Some of you would probably say that here today, I'm afraid of heights. Some are afraid of visiting the dentist. No, uh, no harm done. Spiders, snakes, maybe flying. Some of you might be afraid of mice. How about closed spaces? At the top of the list, you know what's at the top of the list of most people's fears? By the way, there's interesting, there is a fear, I don't remember the name of it, it's a, it's a phobia, but it's the phobia of getting peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. It's an interesting phobia, but I read about that the other day. But uh, what most people are afraid of is actually public speaking. Most people, when they're asked to stand in front of a group of people, don't want to do it. It's the great, one of the greatest fears people have to stand in front of people, public speaking. I remember when I, uh, 19, left home, went to college, came to the States, and, um, and uh, God had called me to ministry. And I, I, I was questioning it all along the way, but God kept opening doors. I just uh, was willing to follow where He led, and I kept questioning, are you sure? Are you sure? I enjoy people, and I, lo- and I love to share the truth and help people point them to Jesus, that bring, He can bring true healing and forgiveness and hope. That's something I, I love to do. But to stand up in front of people, Lord, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could speak and preach your word, but if that's what you're calling me to do, all right, I'll give it a try. But here's my thing. I'm going to go to college, but please, my first quarter in college, do not put me in homiletics class. I don't want to be in homiletics class. I want that to come year two, year three, down the line. I don't want to be put in homiletics class because you know what they do in homiletics class. In public speaking class, in homiletics class, that is the class on how to preach. They actually get you to prepare a message and they get you to stand up in front of the class and look like a complete idiot because you don't know what you're doing at times. So there's homiletics. Lord, please, don't put me in homiletics first quarter. First quarter, homiletics. (laughs) First quarter, homiletics. And I was in a class with a a whole bunch of students who'd been there for three to four years. And I was asked to put together my message. Fear, fear of public speaking, number one. Whether public speaking, whether public speaking or any other part of life, one must want to perform competently and must be willing to face the risk of failure. No success was ever achieved without the risk of failure. But failure is not nearly as bad as we suspect. Grace even allows room for us to fail and to start over again, you see, failing forward. Much more dreadful than failure is the fear that shackles us and either keeps us from trying or that stunts our efforts in trying. So, so far, what we've studied here this morning is that first, people erroneously see themselves as the source of competence. Second, that people are deceived when they see themselves as being incompetent. And no, I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Both statements are true. However, neither is adequate by itself. The solution is not some balancing act between viewing ourselves as something strong and sometimes weak. Even when we are strong, then we are weak. Our strength is temporary at best and is often an illusion. The two arms of truth that are needed is the affirmation of strength and the confession of weakness. 
The affirmation of strength and the confession of weakness. Both are inadequate by themselves because they both make the same error. They view the person as merely some isolated self, that they can do this in and of themselves. But when Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong, how can weakness rather be strength? How is it possible that weakness can be strength? Paul was not talking, of course, about human strength. What appears to be human strength is actually weakness, for it's an attempt to promote and defend oneself. Weakness is true strength because the focus of self is removed. No longer is self promoted and no longer is self defended. Instead, the weak person is willing to spend himself or herself to let go and to let God work in their life. True strength is what God is able to accomplish through us. And when we are willing to be weak enough not to focus on ourselves, then the Spirit of God can work through us to accomplish the purposes of God. Whether strong or weak, we are not to understand those terms apart from God. We are not created to be viewed any other way than in relation to God. He is the one who is the source of our strength and the source of our ability. Whether through creation or a life of faith, God is also, uh, also our strength through the Holy Spirit given to us. Our weaknesses are known and God ministers to us as competent in a life that reflects God's good grace. God often uses those who think themselves to be incompetent. We mentioned earlier Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses trying his best to convince God that God has chosen the wrong people to deliver Israel. Can't do it, can't speak. I don't know how to go in or come out. I'm just, I'm not capable. John the Baptist claimed that he was not even competent enough to carry the sandals of the Messiah. Paul Paul confessed that he was not competent to be called an apostle because he had persecuted the early church. But the confession, the confession of human incapacity is not the end. It is actually with God just the beginning. It's actually the beginning for without acknowledging our shortcomings and our weaknesses, God can't do anything with us can't do anything with us. It's the beginning when we confess our incapacity. Our incapacity is and continues to be absorbed, listen carefully, into God's capacities. We give Him our weakness and He makes us strong by His grace, you see. Now, Paul deals with this idea in 2 Corinthians, if you're still there, chapter 2 and verse 16. Go there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16. After describing the character of Christian ministry, he asks a question. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient or competent for these things? So he's talking about ministry, describes the character of Christian ministry, and he asks the question, who is competent for these things? And then from verses 17 through to chapter 3, verse 3, Paul essentially says, we are, we are competent. But then he adds some qualifications. Notice chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from who? From God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul says, okay, who's competent? Then he explains that we are, but he says that our competency is not from ourselves. It's not, we are not the source of our competency, but the competency comes from God. He is the source. It's significant that the translators of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek use the phrase competent one when describing God in these verses. He is the competent one. He alone is competent. In Him we find our competency for life He has given to us. Now, this is not to suggest that our relationship with God will automatically give us strength and competency, as if at conversion, God will touch His people with some magic wand. Naturally, abilities and preferences for special tasks will in most cases still be present, even though they may not change, or they may change over the years, rather. Competency will still depend on training, will still depend on effort, and the application of wisdom that is grounded in Jesus Christ. Competency doesn't just happen. It is sharpened through great effort in the hand of Almighty God, the competent one. Martin Luther, that great Protestant reformer, was in many ways a competent Christian leader, but not just because he was a willing leader. He was well taught and he worked tirelessly at translating, at writing, at teaching and preaching, and he sought to do God's will with God's assistance. Finding your competency in God will require vulnerability require weakness to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It will require a willingness to be made weak at the foot of the cross. And such vulnerability and willingness are made easier for those of us who've experienced freedom and grace in Jesus Christ. We do not need to prove our toughness, because Jesus certainly didn't. We do not need to fear that we will be found incompetent. Christ has shown that the only way to find life is to actually lose it is to lose it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew this when he returned to Germany in 1939, rather than stay in the United States where he'd be safe. His return allowed him to minister to people in his home country, but it resulted in his arrest and ultimately his execution. In our context, the church loses life to find it by graciously receiving and ministering to those whom society would probably look down upon. Christian experience, Christians experience this, you and I experience this, when we give up our leisure time to perhaps mentor someone, to volunteer our time at our thrift store, or, to, or the winter sanctuary, or to go on some mission trip as service to God, we sacrifice desires and pleasures to enable family, friends, and acquaintances to succeed. We give up life to find it in these ways. God has made His people competent ministers of His new covenant. The Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are fellow laborers together with our God. He has made us competent to minister, to worship, to witness, to give. He's made us competent to be patient, to even grieve, to suffer, to work, and also to rejoice. But the question often rises as to what part of the process is the divine part and what part is the human if God is the source of our competency, how do we distinguish who is responsible for what in our activities? As popular as these questions are, sometimes they're misguided. We can't separate God's activity, activity from the activity of His people. Not possible. God works in and through His people. We must see ourselves in union with God. He works through us. He works through us. We can no more separate God's part and our part than we can separate the divine and the human natures of Jesus. It's not possible. The thoughts of Blaise Pascal, 
provide a fitting summary for the two arms of truth that we've been dealing with. True religion, he said, should teach greatness and weakness, should make us both respect and scorn self, love it and hate it. There is nothing on earth which does not reveal either the wretchedness of man or the mercy of God or the powerlessness of man without God or the strength of man with God. You are not able, God says, but in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, but God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask, think, or hope for. You are not able, but God is able, you see. You are not able. He who will give himself, we're told in Acts of the Apostles, page 283, he who will give himself fully to God will be guided by the divine hand. He may be lowly and apparently ungifted, yet if with a loving, trusting heart he obeys every intention of God's will, his powers will be purified, ennobled, energized, and his capabilities will be increased. In Christ Object Lessons, page 146, it is not the capabilities you now possess or ever will have that will give you success. It is that which the Lord can do for you. She goes on to say, we need to have far less confidence in what man can do and far more confidence in what God can do for every believing soul. He longs to have you reach out to him by faith. He longs to have you expect great things from him. He longs to have you expect them. He longs to give you understanding in temporal as well as spiritual matters. He can sharpen the intellect. He can give tact and skill. Put your talent into the work. Ask God for wisdom and guess what will happen? It will be given to you. This is God's part. This is God's part, and this is our part, and we work together. God works, and we work, and we allow God to work in and through us. You remember the story of David in closing. David was overlooked when Samuel came looking for a family member of Jesse to anoint. You remember the story. David was out there tending to his sheep, he was overlooked, seen as incompetent, not the one that should be anointed king. And Samuel said, hang on a second, God is not, not impressed with any of these other guys. Have you got another son? Jesse, somewhat surprised, calls for David. And David is anointed to be the future king of Israel. You remember David. David goes down to see how his brothers are faring down there as they're fighting the Philistines. And his brothers provoke him taunting him for coming down to, to leave his father's work to come and probably parlay a little bit with the enemy. His brothers don't have a lot, of, a lot of great things to say about David. He's incompetent, and yet he took down that giant Goliath. Saul comes to David, and Saul chases David for a long time. Fifteen years, David is on the run. David feels incapable. David feels weak. David seems like there's no future, no promise. Where, what is going to ever happen with the coronation? David's feeling weak and incompetent. And God takes care of David. God provides for David. And through all these trials, through all these challenges, through all these difficulties that David faces, God is, is sharpening his intellect. God is improving his capabilities. God is preparing him to be coronated king. And one day, one day, one day David is coronated king. And man, have you read the story? 
there was a procession of thousands and thousands of all the mighty men of valor from the different tribes of Israel that preceded David. David was seen as incompetent. David felt incompetent at times. But through it all, God was preparing him to become capable, a servant of the Most High God, trusting in him uh, through faith, allowing God to work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then God crowned David king. He became competent because God worked in him and David worked and cooperated with God. God is calling for us to be competent, calling for us to be strong, but also we can't be strong unless we recognize our weakness. We recognize our weakness. Only God's strength can be shown in our weakness. We are both weak and we are both strong, but in Christ we can become all that He desires for us to be and for us to do. Don't you want to be where God wants you to be, doing those things that God wants you to be doing? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.